And when two men mansplain to each other, that's called a podcast. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On episode 43, we'll be talking more antitrust, nearshoring, Hunger Games style, the subsidy race brewing between the U.S. and the EU, and some potential good news on the economic horizon, not something normally that we report on. And later on, we'll also talk to Richard Baldwin about whether chat, GPT, and other forms of AI will represent a big change in the labor market. Goodbye, upper middle management. And of course, all the juicy tidbits and selfies from this year's Davos. And we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback, obviously, if folks are listening, and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes. But let's get into it. Welcome to episode 43, which is the atomic number you might be happy to know of, Technetium. He was my favorite X-Man, X-Person. It's a silvery gray crystalline transition metal, which is not found in the Marvel franchise, but it is the lightest element whose isotopes are all radioactive, just like Elon Musk's Twitter account. 43 is also the name of a highway in Wisconsin, Rob will be happy to know. It's also the same number of a route and found in Jersey. George Bush was the 43rd president of the United States. And in 1876, the U.S. Supreme Court tried a case known as U.S. versus 43 gallons of whiskey. You know who won that one? Rob's favorite U.S. Supreme Court case. <laughs> and ice. <laughs> ice was an accessory to drinking. We should also remind everyone that what's even more interesting than number 43 is that you can subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Do it 43 times if you like. You can also make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon if you do subscribe any of those 43 times. So, Rob, what have you been hearing on the wires? Well, I think, already we've been hearing a lot about a big balloon causing a lot of heartache in China and the U.S. and the Atlantic seaboard and so on. I think what it just confirms what I told my kids many years ago, they would want balloons. They'd want a balloon that says, happy birthday, happy Mother's Day, whatever it is. But I told them balloons always end in tragedy. So either you let it go, it goes up into a tree, goes up in the sky, or it deflates when you wake up, you cry. Or Joe Biden blows it out of the sky. <laughs> or it pops. <laughs> in this case, sure, a missile was shot at it, but it's the same principle. While he had his Ray-Bans on. So basically, everything we need to know about policy started when my kids were seven and four. You know, balloons end in tragedy. Full okay. stop. I'll go with it. I don't really know what to add to this for fear of perjuring myself. Or getting <laughs> yes, exactly. it's not my balloon dude it's not mine i didn't touch it i don't have any opinion on the balloon this was the this seems to be the chinese uh, approach which was it's not my balloon dude or and then it was like maybe it's my balloon why'd you blow it up but i lost it hey man this aggression will not stand <laughs> they literally took a line out of the big lebowski big lebowski that so to be determined what happened so as we're recording this the balloon is, has been shot down over south carolina this is as of yesterday the day i before. feel safer i feel better next up TikTok, or we'll find out in the next segment hold on apparently we have listener feedback yes we do have listener feedback actually i got approached by someone in the office that i don't know to see if they could be on tradesplaining they just wanted they to have- invite themselves yes did they have a balloon no i'll ask for a balloon next time no balloon, no service. <laughs> big one, big one. Three buses long. Let's just jump right into the important stories on this segment, which is known as what went wrong this week or this episode or this year so far. 
As always, there's plenty to talk about. We can start off with the Hunger Games version of nearshoring, or as Rob calls it, amigo shoring. That's a joke about Mexico. Anyway, so we're seeing that our very own Peter S. Goodman recently about how Chinese companies are actually investing billions in Mexico as a workaround to what we've seen not only during COVID with supply chain crunches, but the geopolitical issues we've been talking quite a lot about. So they've been investing in companies directly into Mexico so that their products can then eventually be called, for example, made in Mexico, have those labels, have easier access to the U.S. market, which is for most of these companies in China, their bread and butter. So it, it makes economic sense for them to do so. So we're already seeing these types of workarounds being implemented. We've seen Taiwan's Foxconn and others also accelerate investment in Mexico because apparently we've come to the realization that it might not be the best idea to source the vast majority of all your computer chips on an island, which is a few miles off the coast of China. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things happening. One is that we know supply chain disruptions have caused companies to think about diversification. They're thinking about shortening supply chains They're thinking about reducing risk. We also, we've been talking kind of pretty much endlessly about geopolitics. So, you know, they need to get inside the bubble here, which they're doing, getting inside the USMCA. And I think it's interesting that it's also, it's going way beyond manufacturing. So we're not just manufacturing big pens and assemblies for cars, but we're actually talking about Foxconn and we're talking about advanced manufacturing and services as well. So I think it's, I mean, it's really interesting. I guess that the joke headline is that they're now kind of, Mexico is competing with China competing with other kinds of outsourcing destinations in a way that maybe we hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it kind of reinforces this idea of regionalism. And we've last week or two weeks ago, we talked about this idea that Mexico might be one of the channels to save North America. Because if we're going to consolidate a regionalism rather than global supply chains, Mexico is one of the places where we're going to have competitive, good services and goods. Which is right on time for that wall to be built should be just coming on stream right when Mexico is hitting full steam on saving us. I think what's funny is that the chip guys are saying this is totally futile or futile. You know, this is not going to work, but yeah, we're definitely going to put billions into Mexico. You know, a billion here, a billion here, soon you're talking about a lot of money. I think this regionalism angle is is quite interesting. We had Shannon O'Neill on the end of last year and followed by Peter, who talked quite a bit about this. Shannon's whole Thing her, she had a whole book out, which is talking about this very topic, which is how the future is actually regional, even though we can talk about globalization, etc. It wasn't something that was on many people's radars, but I think people who credit has to go to, to her and others who have been talking about this quite a bit and I guess are being proven right. So it's an interesting angle. It's not something that we would have seen even two years ago, four years ago, I would say, when we were busy talking about the wall and immigration and drugs, etc., at least talking from a U.S. perspective. The other thing that I think is interesting, we're talking quite a bit about subsidies. So we've been harping on a bit about the EU, the WTO, and the U.S. being a bit at odds over particularly the U.S.'s Green Deals package. So the EU has not only raised issue with this at the WTO, which has raised other questions on whether the WTO is well-placed to adjudicate these things, But the EU is now planning to, quote-unquote, retaliate by increasing subsidies on green investments to counter this U.S. law. So we're seeing, I don't know if a race to the bottom is the right word. I mean, people can read about this, so we won't go into too much detail. But what's interesting to me is that the WTO has sort of said, well, deal with it amongst yourselves because it's not for us to talk about national security issues or, in this case, climate change. It was something that we've not really, at least I haven't seen in my short existence on Earth. Yeah, I mean, so people talk about industrial policy, so picking winners, picking sectors, and so on. The policy is very difficult to get right. I mean, maybe there's an economic argument, but you have to dance on the head of a pin 
with on your head. Now you're getting religious. Whatever it is. Severe left. <laughs> and it's if you don't, and of course you don't get it right, you try to develop an industry in the U.S., you create incredible distortions. The EU is going to create distortions. People are going to start subsidizing and start creating things. Anyway, so industrial policy is creating opportunities, whatever, and also it's creating massive distortions, and we're not sure where it's going to come out. And also, I mean, we hear from other sources that the U.S. has this Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS Act, other acts, and they're all a little bit at counter purposes. So the one is trying to develop green industry, the one is trying to restrict the chips technology, the other's got a third thing. So all of this is creating these confusions. And companies, of course, will adapt, but it's going to be you know, a little bit of a bumpy ride economically, I think. It'll be a lag. I think you said something last episode, which was stuck with me, which was that you kind of put your hands up and said, well, maybe we had gone too far with the whole efficiency at all costs type of argument in terms of how we manage trade, quote unquote. Now we're seeing quite the opposite. I think as I look at these news stories and see how these things are unfolding, my question is, are we at risk of having the pendulum swing in the opposite way? No, I think for sure that that's what I mean. There will be distortions. And the question is a little bit how will it balance out and how will industry work around it? So we're creating you know, little barriers to different kinds of chip technology, different kinds of advanced technology. Folks will maybe develop it at home. And we see, you know, companies like this Dutch company that does all of the foundry technology, all of the, the guys that make the chips, the most advanced chips. Dutch company gets in between the U.S. and China. So, of course, right now they're very tied to U.S. technology and U.S. companies. So they're going to help us to apply export controls, say, to China. But there's a good chance that they will also try to develop a technology that has absolutely no U.S. content. So they can serve sort of Russian and Chinese markets. And they have such a strong place in the market that they easily might succeed in doing that. So they'll be, you know, they'll, they'll have, you know, the ones that work with the U.S. companies on design and technology and so on. But they'll also have the other ones that, that they're exporting the other direction. So, you know, um, industry finds a way. Thanks, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the other thing I think is interesting, and it's kind of related, although tangentially, is the fact that we've seen a rise in antitrust, on, I would say, on both sides of the Atlantic. So the EU, we know, is an antitrust monster. Margaret Vestergaard is somebody I have a, a tattoo of on my right shoulder. She's great. But we've seen, <laughs> we've seen the U.S. talk quite a bit about antitrust regulation, which for the past 40 years was kind of an anomaly. FTC has already prepared possible antitrust suits against Amazon. So we've seen that brewing for a while. People have been talking about it since Lena Khan had come into to head the FTC back in a couple of years ago. But now we're also seeing TikTok, their chief in the US, testify before Congress in March. And so that's a big one because it's not solely being looked at from an economic perspective, but also from this national security angle that we've been talking about as well. So it'll be interesting to see how the US Congress tailors any potential law to incorporate all of these sort of national security implications. I think it's way too late, but in any case, a good idea. We know there's an incredible concentration of market power Google ads, they're thinking, let's break up Google ads. Really? Just now you're thinking of that? So I think they should be doing it. But the technology is going to be racing ahead. I mean, if machines are talking to machines through AI. Incidentally, how advanced is this intelligence? I still get ads posted to me that are about managing that change in life. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about, but keep going. Menopause? Menopause. You're a target so I'm, getting, I'm getting a lot of ads for, for how to manage menopause. Do you have hot flashes? Are the things happening to you? Google ads can help. I mean, what? Well, if you're a middle manager, it's possible. They say, yeah, men get irritable, but it's not cyclical. They're just irritable anytime they want. It's called IBS. 
Irritable, irritable bro. Irritable bros. <laughs> this has gone off on a tangent. So the key point. Are we talking about trade here? The key point is that do not, we don't need to regulate Google ads because they suck. Because Rob still gets That's a bit of a side. That might not be scientific. That's, that's anecdotal is what we call it. I think meta going under or being broken up would be really a pleasure. Their share price skyrocketed after they stopped talking about the metaverse. Now they're going to have to change their name again. <laughs> to the not meta, to the mesoverse. To the whatever makes us moneyverse. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, speaking of things that make us joyful and laugh a lot, there have been sort of silver rays of hope on this global economic front. So I think I came across, there was an article in The Economist talking about how the inflation problem is easing. I will take credit for that and say that I called it three years ago. <laughs> yeah, hold on. Um, I would also note that it's one month after The Economist ran a big article on the looming global recession. Like one month ago. Yeah. The IMF also upgraded its outlook for the global economy. Again, as inflation is easing and China seems to be reopening. Yeah, yeah. And we predicted sort of the end of the world in Europe. There won't be any gas. We'll be cold. We'll have no food. This sort of thing. We'll be eating tins of fish. And well, last one is right. We'll be Netflixing and, and freezing, not chilling. And in fact, that didn't happen. Everything's fine. Thank you, global warming. I think the other thing is that Oil is the new oil. I mean, I, I don't know what episode you stopped me saying that in, but oil is the new oil. Chevron, Exxon, believably large profits. Uh, I guess it's not a surprise considering that the price of oil went up and the demand and all of these things. Which is, I think we need to explore for more oil. I'm for clean coal. I'm nostalgic. I'm for clean oil. I drove a car. I learned to drive on a car that got seven miles to the gallon. And that's why we should have With the radio on. more oil drilling. That, that's your, that's your whole shtick. I your accidentally whole... knocked out the back of the garage, and that's not a euphemism, because the car was so big. Like a bad commercial. 1976 Chevy Impala. That's why you need an Impala. Go, They'll go, put go, a go, hole go, in go, your go, garage. Go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I think we can be happy, at least for this month, until the news articles or the headline writers change their tune, and we go back to being depressed. Yeah, but I do think there are some interesting... So in this region, I want to talk about two things that are happening that are, I think, kind of leading indicators of economic and, let's say, climate change. So one of them is that the retailers, kind of reliable French mid-market retailers of clothing are going out of business almost all at the same time. So Kukai is one of them. I only shop in Switzerland. These guys have been in kind of market malls. They've had two and three and four and 500 stores. But we've reached kind of maximum consumption on clothing. So it has not gone up. The only recent consumption is due to more people on the planet. And apparently we consume about 46 articles of clothing a year, including socks and underwear. So we're reaching peak consumption. So we're going to see that industry changing. And we're not sure exactly how it is. It's Right now it's moving to segments. The deluxe segment's going and the very cheap segment's going. Middle market is gone. The other one is that we see the golden age of skiing ending. So when I first got here in 2003, there were flights every hour, basically, from Britain. People are coming to ski. This Even on the low resorts, there's tons of snow. People are, you know. And like the crusade, but for skiing. <laughs> basically. Invasion of Brits. And, and where I bought in this village, they don't have any snow anymore. They used to have reliably snow every year. They would ski without anything. So without any snow-making machines. So that's okay particularly climate-affected industry. But that's an industry now in the Alps here and in the Jura next to us, which is going out of business. They have to figure out what to do. And it's a $30 billion industry. It's incredibly large. I I mean, I don't want to sound like the guy who's unnecessarily positive all the time, but I guess I think they'll adapt. I mean, I saw you walking. You mean Pollyanna? I saw you snowshoeing. I don't want to be Pollyannish, 
but I saw you snowshoeing in some photos. So I think you'll adapt. I'd never thought I would see you snowshoeing anywhere or skiing for that matter. But since there was no skiing available, you decided to put a racket to your shoe and go walk up a hill. You're um, a Pollyannish hole. <laughs> Richard Baldwin is a prominent economist and professor of international economics at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. He's also the founder and director of the Center for Economic Policy Research, International Trade, and Regional Economics Program. Baldwin has made significant contributions, and I mean significant, to the field of international trade and globalization, and is known for his work on trade theory and policy, as well as his research on the economic effects of globalization and developing countries, and his hat. Baldwin received his PhD in economics from Harvard University in 1986. Not too shabby. Before I was born. He has also held various academic positions throughout his career, including teaching at the University of Michigan and the London School of Economics. My old job. He has also served as a consultant for various international organizations such as the World Bank, the IMF, WTO. And his work has been widely published in leading economic journals and is a frequent commentator on economic policy in the media. In addition to his academic work, Baldwin is also a well-known public intellectual. He's the author of several books on international trade and globalization, including, quote, The Great Convergence, Information Technology and New Globalization, unquote. I, I read that quote, one. The Euro, one. colon, How a Common Currency Threatens the Future of Europe. Boring. So, Richard, thanks for, for joining us once again. This, I think, is your second time on the podcast. The last time we had you on was the better part of two years ago. So it'll be interesting to see what we got wrong or what we didn't. I think I was mostly flogging my book for the first time. but Which was a fantastic book, which you should all read. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find it any Barnes we and Noble. We can see what my book got right and wrong. That's the... <laughs> so first question, your book that we had talked about last time out, talked a lot about the coming automation, the wave and the effects that would have on the world and the way we work. ChatGPT has been in the news quite a bit recently, and I guess it represents a big change in the labor market for white-collar workers this time. This is something I think you talked about also quite a bit, how the change would be not just hitting the blue-collar workers of Jane, Wisconsin, but now we're seeing that lawyers may be out of a job in a couple of years. You know, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, but it'll be people we did not think would be out of a job. How do you think we will be using it in 10 years? Or also, is that take right the first bit? And does this sort of level or unlevel the playing field when it comes to economies around the world? Okay, so two good questions. Let me start with very specifically chat GDP. And here I heard uh, the, the beautiful thing about Davos is, you know, you have chit chat on your news feeds, but I got to hear the founder of DeepMind talking about chat TV and Satya Nadella, who just put $10 billion into the thing and Eric Brynjolfsson and Martin Sorrell, you know, these are the people who actually do this stuff. They're absolutely convinced that in the next two or three years, it will change most people's jobs in the service sector. In particular, anybody who writes or generates contents, their jobs will be changed by this. So as it turns out, lots of stuff that we thought required really human inputs is in fact just cutting and pasting from the universe of stuff you've heard and putting it back together, which is exactly what ChatGPT does, but incredibly fast. So do think ChatGP is really going to move the dial on automation. 10 years out, it's a little hard to say because things could go much, much further. It's not clear exactly what they're going to do, but many, many white-collar tasks will be automated, as I predicted. I just didn't see it coming like this fast. Mm -hmm. Your other question, though, let me come back to that, about will it level or not? 
And I think that's a very, very interesting question. And I think in the beginning, it will level in the sense that, like, if you remember before Word corrected your spelling, lots of things you got had spelling errors in them. And the same thing with emails. You'd see spelling errors in emails now. Now you never see spelling errors because of AI. But it doesn't mean there are, there are you know, big changes, but it just means that everybody's a good speller now. So I think the first thing is it will level it. Everybody will be, there's no excuse now not to be a good writer because you can write something, you pop it into GPT and you said, please correct the English in this or, you know, rewrite it. So it sounds like it was written by Paul Krugman or whoever, your Adam Tooze or whatever. So there's no excuse now to have bad text generated. And that, that I think is a leveling thing. Chat GPT has obviously not met Robert Skidmore because if I go by <laughs> the work on this podcast, there's always an apostrophe. We write this like Andrew Tate. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there you go. Bye. I guess, so one question I wanted to ask, because I watched a little bit of the panel with those guys you mentioned, but always they end the panel by saying, you know, this won't destroy jobs because there's 173 job functions everybody has and AI can only replace three of them. And so it's actually going to make us better lawyers. And right. are they just saying that because they don't want to be like doom GPT? Well, you know, they make you drink the Kool-Aid as you yeah, walk in exactly. the Congress center, right? So <laughs> it's tasty Kool-Aid. have to be relatively optimistic. The most pessimistic you can be is that we're going to have a recession. But <laughs> yes. anyways, no, that's joking. But I, I think what Bryn Jolfesen is the one who talked about that. Technological progress has sometimes been complementary to some groups of people and therefore raise their wage and productivity and substitutes for others and therefore displace their jobs. But I think the main point that they were making is that this is re replacing tasks, not jobs. So it's like the tractor is not going to replace the farmer, but it's going to make the few farmers that are left much more productive than they were before. So Personally, I do think it's going to displace a lot of jobs and change all the jobs in the short run. In the short run, I don't know how many will totally eliminate because you can't rely on this thing. I tried, I asked it to explain Danny Roderick's globalization paradox in simple terms. And it said, eh, the paradox theory of globe, it assigned it to Danny and then got it completely wrong. You can't just throw it up there like that. Your skills are going to need journalists and people to screen it. So that personally, I think that this whole thing will, and this is from my book, I think ultimately this AI machine learning stuff is database pattern recognition. And the best jobs in the white collar sector are experience-based pattern recognition. So normally you need 20 years as a journalist to know where the hot stories are, to have all the networks and stuff like that. But now a junior reporter with a really good AI trained model can be almost having the judgment of somebody more sophisticated. So, so I think it will create a new class of middle income jobs for people of average skills, but average skills now with 20 years experience. I think it will be equalizing for income because I think it'll give more power to average people than it will to the most sophisticated people. Not necessarily chat GTP, but you can see like the best writers in the world that might make it a little bit better for them. But the crap writers, they'll be much better than they were before. Yeah. And I think for, for the outsourcing industry in the countries where I work, some of the stuff they do, which humans can do, like typesetting your overnight ads and so on, pretty quickly would become automatic. So it would yeah. be quite interesting for the outsourcing industry as well, because the wage arbitrage that they're doing, won't really cut it anymore. So I've understood that the call center industry is being gutted in India because the chatbots are getting so good. 
But it's again, I don't think it's ever going to be fully automated. But the prompts would be much better. The the call center uh, example is is also quite interesting. I would like to see what the call center workers start picketing, like the Luddites did. I wonder how we how do we smash Chat GPT (laughs) with axe handles? I don't understand. I don't know who to what to smash. Because I've already yeah. wait, I've already gone through two Rob, laptops. Rob, this was already ex- this was already explained in detail <laughs> in Terminator One, Two, Three, Four, Five, Six. Yeah, that's all right. of them. That's right. I think the that the nightmare scenario of middle management disappearing so far hasn't happened. Is what we should be worried about. Is Which what you're is trying to say. All I care about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I know this is going from like the big stuff, to the, the really bundling style stuff, the to less sexy but still to the, important, to the micro stuff, but. I don't know where the trade featured at all at, at, at Davos this time, but we do see that one of the things we talked about at that time we've been talking about since we started the podcast was kind of fragmentation. Everybody's writing articles about end of globalization. The U.S. is not being a very supportive to the WTO and the kind of global institutions like that. What was the mood in Davos about trade? And do you think, are we actually heading towards something that's going to look significantly different or is it still just changing marginally? What he means is, is Chad GPT going to replace trade negotiators? <laughs> to replace the, <laughs> replace the WTO? <laughs> <laughs> well, so probably the biggest buzzword in the meetings I went to was deglobalization. And for some reason or other, they use a dash between the D and globalization. But anyways, and the question I get asked many, many times, is deglobalization real or is it whatever like that? by journalists, by panelists, by whatever. And I think certainly what I believe and what a lot of people were saying is globalization is not dying, it's changing. And in particular, I wrote a series of box columns on it showing that if you look at goods and trade as a share of GDP, that's declined since 2008. Different, I mean, it's not a single story, but it's definitely declined. And maybe it's stagnated, but in any case, it is not going up on a rocket ship like it was between 1990 and the mid-2000s. So that's telling us something has changed for sure in goods. However, if you look at trade and services of the kind that we've been talking about, like offshoring white-collar jobs, telemigration, that stuff, call centers, that has not stopped growing as a share of GDP. And now it's 20% of all international commerce is of that, the technical name is other commercial services. That's a statistical category for it. And its share doubled from 10% to 20% in 15 years. And so that's going up. So clearly, trade in services is replacing trade in goods. And my personal take is that it's trade in intermediate services, which are not regulated, sort of back office sort of stuff. That's just going to continue taking off because it's our wage arbitrage and the wage differences are just enormous. And COVID taught us we can do some things remotely, but not everything. But a lot of the stuff, we're going to start experimenting with what can be done by far away people, really far away, very cheap people, still in the same time zone. But so a lot of people are saying it's not ending, it's just changing in nature. I think we said that on the podcast, so you probably heard it here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're actually going to get ChatGPT to write the intro for this interview. So we're going to ask it to give us an intro for Richard Baldwin. Anyway, moving on. Of course, we want to hear any updates you have on fast food. But what was your favorite selfie? 
from I know you're a selfie connoisseur from Davos. I went a bit wild with the selfies, so I think I did about 35. We weren't invited, wow. but we watched from afar. It felt we, like we were there. We kind of like stalked you. We didn't like anything because we didn't want you to know that we That's were watching. Exactly. <laughs> I see. But uh, <laughs> we saw everything. This year, I sort of stayed away from, for the most part, from big public figures and ambush selfies, you know, like uh, Jack Ma and that kind of stuff. And I was just going with kind of journalists and academics and uh, thinkers and public sectors who I actually know relatively well. And the one that was most popular with the Twitter crowd was the governor of the Central Bank of Japan, Kuroda-san, who I've known quite a long time, but we were just at a coffee bar and I said, let's take a picture. And he, very nice smile, whatever. And uh, it was seen over 100,000 times. It was like four or 500 times. It was just insanely popular. And then I'm not sure wh what was my favorite one. I got a lot of journalists like Gideon Rockman and Martin Wolf and Esha Nel Nelson from the New York Times. Were any of them visibly perturbed or taken aback? Did you scare any of and them, surprise them? No, I think it's a thing to do now. Actually, I think a lot of people, even somebody has to take one with me. Like the sociology of, first of all, people do it. And, you know, these are all famous people who know they're famous and they're surrounded by people who like this. And and it's a, a lot more personal. You're sort of definitely at the same level. So I didn't see anybody say no. The only one I couldn't get was Catherine Tay, the USTR. And I was chasing behind her was going to be an ambush one. I know her. I moderated a talk for her last year. Mm. But in any case, I was running behind and I made two mistakes. One, there were secret service agents between me and her. And two, <laughs> I called her Susan instead of Catherine. And she didn't say no, but the secret service said to no. I turned around and said no. And they kept walking. So that was the only refusal I got. We do have one more. Apparently there's been a CERN has come up with another discovery. They've come up with the quark, obviously, but they found that the smallest unique particle in trade is called a Baldwino, <laughs> and that all of trade is made up of billions of Baldwinos. Is that... Can you, can you comment? Is true or false? Can I comment on that? Let me see. So it's a fundamental particle? Yes. Or, or That's what they it's think a now. Yeah. particle. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back, and probably not all of it, but you know, maybe everything after 1986. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> We'll take it. The listeners of Trace Planning heard it here first. I heard it here first. 86 was a big year. I graduated high school. I wasn't even year. born. <laughs> the Top Gun didn't even come out that year. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Richard, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure yet again. Hope to have you on. Hopefully we're not going to wait two years, another two years to have you on. Hopefully it's sooner. But it's been a pleasure talking and yeah, hope to have you on again. Great to be here. Bye-bye. Hey, Rob, why is your uh, phone broken yet again? <sighs> well, it's been real wet out, Artie, and with all this rain, my phone slipped out of my hand and broke. Another expensive thing for me to fix. Rob, I think you would not have had this problem if you used Case Folklore. Case Folklore? What's that? Case Folklore offers customized phone cases which come in an assortment of designs. Right here, you've got a Taylor Swift one, which, which I'm using. You can also find out more by checking out their Instagram page at Case Folklore and using the promo code SPLAINING at checkout. Don't get the Taylor Swift one. That was just a joke. We're not really fans. I wish I'd done that back when it was hot out, but I'll definitely go to Case Folklore now. Thanks, Case Folklore. That brings us to our next segment, which is when we bring in trade planning correspondent Michelle Olguin to 
talked to us about the vibe shift, perhaps the best barometer of the vibe shift is Davos. But I guess my question is, did it really happen? Yeah, so Davos definitely did happen. But you know what also happened a couple of weeks ago? Berlin Fashion Week. And no, nobody has heard of Berlin Fashion Week because it's not Paris, Milan or New York. But one brand in particular had its vibes shifted at this Fashion Week. Because during Berlin Fashion Week, Adidas announced that it would get rid of any alleged sweatshop connections. As a matter of fact, Adidas made history with their new CEO, or co-CEO, should I say, a Cambodian garment worker named Vai Ya Nak Phon, who gave an emotional speech about the horrible conditions in their company's supply chain and promised to make things right with the Pay Your Workers Agreement. This was all part of the launch of the Adidas Reality Wear, a promise to own up to the reality of worker abuse in their factories. The thing is, it wasn't really Adidas doing this. The whole thing was actually a prank that was organized by the Yes Men, a duo of culture jamming activists who have pulled many stunts like this before. The actual real Adidas just responded to this with like a few statements in defense, which weren't very convincing. These guys are pretty cool. We should have these guys on the podcast. Yeah, might, 100%. I'm afraid they might prank us. They probably then rolled into Davos on kind of like a golden chariot. So actually, they haven't been at Davos since 2010. But they did pull this kind of prank at Davos, which was a whole segment or a whole conference. What did they do at Davos? A whole speech about how it was nice that we ended slavery because slavery cost people money because you have to pay for your slaves to be housed and fed in order for them to work. That? And who wants that? Exactly. You don't want that. So it's better if you leave them in other countries and they have to pay for their own housing and their own food, and you can still pay them less than minimum wage. The moral of the story is... We want them at Davos. That's the moral of the story. You know what I would want? A shameless selfie of Richard Baldwin with the Yes Man. I'm sure it exists. Yes Man, if you're listening, you are invited to appear on the podcast Just with say yes. Richard Baldwin. Just say yes. All right, that brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe it unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. Especially because regionalism is back. Exactly. When we mean regionalism, we mean everywhere. So anyway, there's been a couple of really important pieces of news that I thought we should be tracking. First of all, I think we do have some parents listening. We certainly have children and people who are in the middle listening. And there's a very important piece of guidance from the Wall Street Journal. Don't be that parent that ghostwrites their kids' text messages. Because you're not going to get it right. You're going to use punctuation. You're going to use phrases like mutual friends. The kids are going to know. I mean, maybe you want to get in there. You want to write something. You want to get your eloquence rolling. You want to kind of, don't do it. I think that means that I'm a parent who goes right to your scripts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like I don't have kids yet, but, you know, I think that makes me a parent. Who would ghostwrite their kids' texts? Me and Michelle are co-parenting you. Did Okay, Michelle, did your parents ever ghostwrite your texts? No, I don't think they know how to text properly. Did they ever, were they ever feeling like they had to intervene in some sort of online situation and they were kind of like writing you content? Well, My mom had fun. a blog for a long time. See? Yeah. But she wasn't ghostwriting was... my Tumblr or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> my daughter had Tumblr too. Yeah, honestly, it feels like an <laughs> SNL sketch where they try to portray Gen Z. Wall Street Journal finds people. They find the reporters go and talk to people, the mom because the other one was having an issue with their friends and she wrote a text. 
Must have been a slow news week at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. We don't know how Wall they Street use emojis. Wall Street Journal, they find people. <laughs> that sounds anecdotal. I didn't want to read the one more story about how the IMF has added two-tenths of one percent to world growth, like you like, Artie. That's our core competency. So there's another one perhaps more compelling. As we know, a lot of endangered species out there. And there's one in Australia called a quoll, Q-U-O-L-L. It appears to be like a little weasel. Or... I thought that was a punctuation mark. I thought it was a website where you just ask it anything. Anyway, like many humans, and I don't talk about the people that are literally podcasting with me right now, but I'm sure there are others, they're giving up sleep for more sex, and it's actually causing them to have higher mortality. The quolls are giving up sleep. Yeah, they're, they're going too far. They're, they keep, all night, they're looking for a partner, as you might do with Twitter and, or Tinder, whatever that's called. They have a cocaine you're problem? Swiping, you're swiping, you're problem. swiping. I don't know what they're eating. You're swiping, you're swiping. You're actually not drinking, you're not eating. You're actually causing yourself to be more vulnerable to conditions such as drought. And you're allowing yourself to have more, for instance, parasites. And then after you do the act, maybe you do find one, maybe you, maybe you have a big night, you die. That's, and it's a contributing to their extinction. At least they went out happy. Well, that's what I'm saying. Isn't it a good way to go? I'm not sure. I mean, if you're a coal and you go 50 kilometers, it seems like a lot. You're, you're about a, you're a couple of inches long. They, um, so no sleep. They should maybe not or stop listening to the Beastie Boys. <laughs> well, folks, that about wraps up episode 43, brought to you by Technetium, everybody's favorite villain. Foxconn eating its own tail in Mexico. And, of course, your friend, Industrial Policy and their corollary green subsidies. And of course, we got to thank once again to our returning guest, Richard Baldwin, for joining us to make us feel slightly less worse about ChatGPT and the demise of upper-middle management. And again, to tell us about his successes on the track during high school. We also wanted to thank our executive producer, Michelle Olguin, and Valentina Sapernata for highlighting the vibe shift as well as in producing this and every TS episode. And like I mentioned earlier, please don't forget to subscribe to this damn podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our next episode coming out very When's soon. When's our next episode coming out? Very, very soon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, I don't Spotify, find it. Google, I don't know where to find it. Google us and you will find us anywhere you get your podcasts. If you don't have email, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter uh, at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining or email us your questions, comments, the old-fashioned uh, That's the one. At Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. If that doesn't work, you can also send it to Rob's house by Carrier Pigeon in the foothills of Prem. And folks, remember, listen responsibly.